0: Well, Father, we come before you in anticipation at what you might be doing in these uh, next 45 minutes. We pray that your word will speak loudly and clearly to us, encourage those who need it, confront those who need it. But Lord, we, we are your servants and we want you to speak to us through your word. And I pray this sermon will do so in Christ's name. Amen. Well, back when I was in college, I was trained in evangelism using a tract known as the four spiritual laws. You guys, oh, all the baby boomers, Gen Xers are like, yes, we remember that. The first law is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. There. Right? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And that was substantiated by John 10, 10, where Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now, looking back, there's a lot of truth to that, right? For the Christian, God loves you. And for the Christian, God has a wonderful plan for your life. But when you throw in the God, Jesus came that you may have life and have it abundantly, sometimes that would almost give the wrong impression that the abundant life would be characterized by financial security fulfilling relationships occasional trips to Branson right because if you're a Christian that's where you vacation <laughs> and so it's all about happiness and fulfillment and and God has the power to get you there. And so all of a sudden, God has a wonderful plan for your life is, well, I have a wonderful plan for my life and God could help me. And and sometimes we're confronted with circumstances that are too great for us to handle on our own. And so that's when we go to the power of God and and seek His abilities. I read a a study that said that 85% of people confronting a major illness pray. 85% of people who are confronting a major illness, they pray. They pray for the power of God to restore their health. And and that's why a lot of us will approach God as we have a wonderful plan for our life. Our wonderful plan might include finding a spouse. It might include acquiring wealth or all-around happiness. And so people seek God to fulfill this wonderful plan for their life. Now, if you look at that first spiritual law, it says God loves you and offers you a wonderful plan for your life. In other words, it is God's plan for your life. And get this. God's plan for your life is better than your plan for your life. Ever thought about that? God's plan for your life is better than your plan for your life. How God chooses to use His power is better than your plan for how he should use his power. And this is something that comes out in our text for today in Luke 8 40 through 56. Now, this passage follows the heels of Jesus casting out the demons from the Garrison demoniac. Do you remember that? Shows up in Gentile territory, he's greeted by a man who is possessed by demons, he's casting them out, they're crying out in torment, and they say, please send us into the, to that herd of pigs over there, and he does, and 2,000 of them go into the water, they drown, the people of the village come out, they see Jesus, and the man who was formerly a monster sitting at his feet, and a bunch of bloated pigs floating in the Sea of Galilee. This terrifies them. A man with that kind of power of the spirit realm, what can he do to us? And so they ask him. You can't drive him out when he has that kind of power. They ask him to leave, and he leaves. He then crosses the lake, and he gets a different reception, starting in verse 40. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately, her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling. And falling down before him declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. arise, and her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given to her to eat, and her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Now, this passage completes four displays of Jesus' power. The first display was when he showed power over nature when he calmed the storm. Remember that? The second display was when He displayed His absolute power over the spirit realm. And then we get a two-for-one here. We got one story with two miracles. You have a leader of the community publicly imploring Jesus for help. And then you have a pariah Who sneaks up behind him to try to sneak a miracle? You have one with great social esteem and one who was pushed to the side. You have one who was sick and then another who is dead. In both cases, you see that Jesus builds on this power of our nature and power of the spirit world by showing not only power over disease, but power over death. This is all about the power of Jesus. But what's also interesting about this is, both this hemorrhaging woman and Jairus, they have their own plan and their own instinct for how this whole thing should work out. But Jesus, Jesus makes it very clear that he's in control of the whole situation and that he has a different plan than they may have had for themselves and his plan is better than their plan. Right, so when you, when you kind of look at just our lives, right, I mean, how many of you guys have a wonderful plan for your life? Let's just be honest. We love making plans. I love making plans. And God has the power to execute any plan. But the only plan that he ever executes is his plan. And his plan is better than your plan. And you see things like death, and sickness do not hinder his plan. In fact, as we go through this, we're going to see how Jesus has a plan for disease and then Jesus has a plan for death. But when we look back, you look at who actually has the plan. It's Jesus. I heard this week an interesting quote that Jesus is the one who knows most and loves the most. If anybody is to have a plan for your life, who would you want it to be? His plan, Is better than your plan. So we'll walk through this by surveying this miracle, starting with how Jesus has a plan for disease. Now, verse 40 now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. That's quite a change, right? Right, the Gentiles, they're pushing Jesus away because he had too much power. In their mind, that a Jewish Messiah with this kind of power would try to expel all the Gentiles. So let's get all, let's get this guy away from us. They drive him across the lake. And when he goes across the lake, waiting for him are all the Jews who have a wonderful plan for his life. Jesus, he can do a lot. And one of the men with the plan for his life is Jairus. And there came a man named Jairus who was a ruler of the synagogue. Now, Jairus was not some sort of manipulator. Uh, he's actually taking quite a risk here. The religious leadership is already turning against Jesus at this point in his ministry. And Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, he would be the one who would help arrange the teaching, who would oversee uh, the health and prosperity of the synagogue. He was uh, the ruler, he would maintain the building, he was the community leader. And he approaches Jesus. and doesn't just approach Jesus. He falls at his feet. He implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter. About 12 years of age. And she was dying. Young woman. On the cusp of womanhood. Is fatally ill. He hears that Jesus just showed up makes his way to Jesus, fights through the crowd, falls at his feet, he begs for mercy because he's concerned about his little girl. And child mortality, that was very common back then. In fact, they estimated that in the poor sectors of Roman society, half of children didn't reach adulthood. I mean, can you imagine? John Owen, uh, one of the great Puritan theologians, actually lost 11 of his 12 children Martin Luther lost two of his six. I mean, I mean, child death was very common, but didn't make it any less painful. This was his only daughter. And for those of you who are girl dads, right, right there, there's nothing you wouldn't do for your daughters. So he humbles himself in front of Jesus. And in his mind, if he can get Jesus in the same room as his daughter, his daughter will live and so jesus went right he agrees he prioritizes jairus and seeks to heal jairus's daughter and the people pressed around him and that word pressed it's used in a different context in the parable of the sowers of the the weeds choking out the seed of the gospel right it's, think you ever seen those youtube videos of those japanese subway cars you people in uniform with the white gloves and they kind of push people in like they're packing a sardine can and everyone's just, okay. I've seen it and it's something, I, I don't know why. Look up Japanese subway car and you'll, not now because we're in church. <laughs> but the idea is that people are all packed in, okay? And this is an obstacle as they're fighting through this crowd trying to get to Jairus' house. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. All three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all make reference to this woman bleeding for 12 years. She had some chronic condition, likely from her uterus, um, that caused perpetual hemorrhaging. And this is bad news For a number of reasons. I'll give you four. For one, it's painful. It's painful. Now, I'm not a woman. And even if I identified as one, I've never experienced this. (laughs) But I have heard from an unnamed source that this type of bleeding hurts a lot. Second, the woman who is bleeding this long, would no doubt suffer from anemia. So you're looking at fatigue, dizziness, constant headaches, and other symptoms. Three, the woman would be considered unmarriageable in that society. She would be unable to have a child. After a number of dates, the man might ask, do you want to have children someday? Well, that's kind of impossible because I've been bleeding for six years. Okay, it's been nice knowing you. Fourth, she would be considered ceremonially unclean. If you touch her, you're defiled. She couldn't be in the presence of God in the temple. And I guess there's a fifth reason all of her attempts to be healed did not work. In fact, the um, guidebook for rabbis of that day, the Talmud, had, had 11 different prescriptions for how to deal with this type of sickness drink this potion, mix this up. You have to stand in a road and and say this word or this incantation, and maybe that will take it away, but this woman impoverished herself because she was always seeking a healing, right? You, you, You see it. She's in a desperate straits, and she came up behind him, okay? She has a plan, right? She sees Jesus making his way through the crowd, and she comes up behind him And touches the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. Woman sees Jesus, and she gets this idea. If I can somehow just touch the fringe of his garment, then this bleeding of mine that has afflicted me these 12 years will stop. Now, what's interesting is she doesn't just ask Jesus. She doesn't approach Jesus so that they can have some sort of conversation. She wants a secret miracle, and she probably has her reasons for this, right? Because she's been an outcast. She is unclean. She sneaks up behind Jesus, thinking, if I could just touch his garment, that'll be sufficient. And what do you know? It works. She got her healing. Her, Her plan had been fulfilled. But Jesus has a different plan. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? Right, he's making his way. And and you can see Jairus just kind of like, this way, Jesus. Get out of the way, out of the way. We need to get him to my house. All of a sudden, Jesus just says, wait, 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 Jairus. Who, Who touched me? Now, that word who, you can't see it in English. But in the Greek, it's masculine. Which man touched me? It indicates that Jesus, in his humanity, at this moment, didn't know who touched him. And that woman would know that her secret is safe because he obviously doesn't think it was a woman. She just lies back. Who touched me? When all denied it, Peter, and Peter's very helpful here. Master, the crowd surround you and are pressing in on you. Jesus, come on, we're elbow to elbow here. And he almost hear Jairus, yep, that's right, we don't know. Come on, let's go, let's go. (laughs) But Jesus makes it very clear that there was a special kind of touch. There was something unique about this touch that was different from all the other touches that were taking place. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. Jesus is getting warmer. He's starting to figure some things out. And so, this woman who's hoping for the secret miracle, hoping that she would just blend into the crowd, hoping that Jesus would just say, Well, A lot of people are touching. Let me just go on. She's starting to realize something that Jesus is starting to narrow in. He knows that she was a recipient of a special touch. And now Jesus is asking this person to receive the special touch to come forward and reveal herself or himself. And so what does a woman do? She wanted a private miracle. She wanted a healing. And that was it. And now, this Messiah figure stops this procession and demands that she reveal herself. Now, what emotions would go through your mind? If I were to come up to you and say, Let's get lunch sometime, what's the normal reaction? What did I do? Actually, it'd be better if we just met in my office. Do you want to just meet in my office sometime? Uh-oh. Right, I'm just, I'm just a pastor. In this type of case, there was fear on her part. There was a reason why she wanted a secret miracle. She was afraid that she would do something wrong if she took the direct approach. Perhaps she would defile Jesus, right? She was unclean after all. But this woman decides to obey. And then when the woman saw that she was not hidden she came trembling and falling down before him declared in the presence of not just Jesus but all the people why she touched him and how she had been immediately healed she explained i came up behind you jesus and i touched you and when i touched you The bleeding stopped for the first time in 12 years. The bleeding stopped. And then, this is what Jesus does. This is where Jesus' plan was better than her plan. Her plan was to get a healing and then just move on. But he wanted her to come forward and publicly confess this. And then he says this, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. I want to focus on three aspects. One, he calls her what? Daughter. Remember earlier in Luke 8, 21, how his parents try to, uh, well, not his parents, his, his family, his mother and brothers are trying to talk to Jesus. And he says this, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. He's basically telling this woman in front of everyone, keep in mind she was a pariah. She was unclean, not fit for marriage. He says, this woman here, she's part of my family. He brings her into the community with a public declaration. Then secondly, he makes it very clear that ultimately what saved her was not some superstitious touch She had a faith in Jesus. She believed that Jesus had the power to heal her, and she acted on that faith by coming forward. Agreed. And he tells everyone, it was your faith. He tells her, it was your faith that made you well. He affirms her faith, and then he says, go in peace. He sends her off with a blessing. See, this woman just wanted a healing. She wanted a physical restoration of her body. But Jesus gave her more than that, didn't he? He gave her a spiritual restoration and restored her to the family of the Messiah. She had a plan, but Jesus had a better plan. Now, speaking of plans... Jairus has a plan. Can you imagine what Jairus would have been doing this whole time? Who touched me? Jesus, we don't know, come on. Okay, let's go ahead and wrap this up, lady. Okay, we got things to do. Well, his worst fears come to pass in verse 49, and this is where you see how Jesus has a plan for death. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. You know, it's really interesting how in this miracle, as well as the miracle of the raising of Lazarus, Jesus' delay can be attributed to the person's death. Jesus waits. And now Jairus... His plan to heal his daughter has just fallen apart. He will return to his home, a grieving man, to make preparations for the funeral. And, and I, I'm sure he would be filled with the if-onlys, right? If only I would have gotten to Jesus sooner. If only Jesus would not have stopped. If only the woman would not have taken so long to tell her story, right? If only, if only, if only. He's already grieving. But Jesus makes it clear, not so fast. Right, The story is not over. Verse 50. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. So Jairus has a choice to make. Jesus, I know you mean well, but I mean she's dead. There, there's really no coming back from this. Perhaps he thinks about Elijah and Elisha, both raised children from the dead. And he thinks, why not? And he shows them to his house. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and the mother of the child. And and, uh, he explains why a little bit later on. And all were weeping and mourning for her. Now when Jesus comes to the ruler's house, there's already funeral arrangements taking place. And what you'd do when you had a funeral in that day and age is you would hire some professional mourners. Even the poorest family would hire one flute player and a couple of mourners, and they're kind of like cheerleaders for a funeral, only they lead in mourning and weeping. Kind of a strange custom. But Seneca, the Roman orator, talks about Claudius's, you know, the Emperor Claudius's funeral and said people were weeping and wailing so loud, he was pretty sure that Claudius could hear him from the grave. Right? The expressive emotion displaying the pain that you are supposed to feel. And so when Jesus shows up, they're all weeping and mourning for her. And he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. You don't wake up from death but you wake up from sleep he makes it very clear that this is going to have a happy ending and you would think that everyone would be intrigued by this, stop wailing and weeping and well maybe Jesus could do this but verse 53 says and they laughed at him knowing that she was dead one commentator translates this they laughed in his face I mean these were professional mourners It's like going up to a mortician at a funeral, pointing to the body in the casket, saying, Are you sure she's dead? The mortician would say, Stay in your lane, right? These mourners are saying, Stay in your lane, Jesus. Of course she's dead. People don't come back from the dead. Well, they're not going to see it. Jesus excuses them. He brings in three trusted disciples, he brings in the wife. And Jairus. But then, taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. Now, notice, first of all, he takes her by the hand. Jesus touches a dead body that was unclean. He says, Child, arise. And then her spirit returned. Remember what death is? It's a separation. Of the body and the spirit. But here the body is there, he touches her by the hand, and the spirit returned, and she got up at once. And then I love this detail. And he directed that something should be given to her to eat. Dying probably just gave you quite an appetite. Why don't you give her some food to eat? What do you got? See, Jesus is not going to be defiled by death, he defeats death. He demonstrates his power. And this is the point of all of this. Verse 56. And her parents were amazed. Her parents were amazed. Now, it would be amazing to see Jesus come and heal your sick daughter. But for Jesus to resurrect your daughter from the dead, that is a greater miracle. They had a plan for Jesus, right? Jesus was going to come, enter into the room, and he was going to take the sickness away. But Jesus had a better plan. I'm not going to just take the sickness away. I'm going to raise your daughter from the dead. You're going to see something that hardly anyone has ever seen in all of human history. This will amaze you. And is it true that they had to go through the pain and the emotional distress of hearing your daughter, hearing that phrase, your daughter is dead? It it is true that the wife was there and watched her, her daughter's life expire. All of that is true. But Jesus had a better plan for that, and they were amazed. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Right? When word of this got out, how many people would be bringing their dead relatives to Jesus? They would make that the focal point of his ministry. Jesus, with this kind of power, i got some plans for you. They would not believe that ultimately this was to point to another reality. That he would say later on in Luke 9.22 the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Right, ultimately, he's going to take away death. But the way that he's going to take away death is by dying on the cross to pay the penalty for sin. And then he would be raised. See, Israel had plans for their Messiah and didn't include his death, right? But this was actually a better plan. Jairus had plans for Jesus, which would include coming straight away and healing his daughter from sickness, but Jesus gives a better plan where he now has a high view of God and a high view of Jesus. The woman had a plan for Jesus where she would just touch him secretly, but Jesus had a better plan for her where she would come forward and he would restore her to the community. Jesus' plan is better than their plan. Now, it is human nature to think about the future and to plan, right? A young Christian couple, they're dating for a long time, they are in love, they have plans to get married, at least one of them does, until the other one moves on, and that's the end of it. He's still in love, but she doesn't love him back, and he's devastated. A single Christian has a wonderful plan to get married someday, But the problem is, nobody has a wonderful plan to marry them. An ambitious Christian seeks to rise in his profession, build his company, advance. Problem is, the higher-ups or the customers don't have that kind of plan for him or her. Christian couple has a wonderful plan to have lots of children. Five years of trying, that doesn't seem to be God's plan. Christian is in chronic pain perhaps for 12 years. And if only they could get healthy, then they can do all these wonderful plans, but that's not going to take place. Couples finally able to retire. They have plans to see the world, but all they're doing now is seeing the inside of various hospitals and doctor's offices. You raise children, you have a wonderful plan for their life. You want them to walk with the Lord, but that's not their plan for their life plan to have a lifelong relationship with his friend or sibling or child, but their life expires before that can be realized, right? We all have wonderful plans. So what do you do when your wonderful plan for your life seems to be at odds with God's wonderful plan for your life? Isn't that the question? I think, first of all, you need to have faith in Jesus' power, right? That's one thing that Jairus had. That's one thing the woman had. They had faith in his power. And Jesus, through these series of miracles over nature, over the demonic realm, over sickness and over death, shows that he has complete power to exercise his plans. Now, I mentioned earlier that I'm a a planner. And one of my favorite things to do is to plan vacations. Yes, my kids snicker, but they're grateful deep down. We planned a vacation, well, I planned a vacation to Washington, D.C. last year. I had driving routes planned. I knew where we were going to send, you know, what time we had to leave on Saturday to make it to Indiana. I routed it so that we can go through as many states as possible, arranged to stay at Gettysburg for two nights, made sure that we saw Mount Vernon. We did the National Mall on the best day, we saw the Museum of the Bible. We saw Allerington National Cemetery. We even saw the Ark Encounter on the way back. Had it all planned. And you know what? It all went according to plan, and I wanted to get my dad card stamped at the end of it. (laughs) I would have smoked a cigar and would have said, I love it when a plan comes together. (laughs) I loved it. I loved it. And I'm pretty sure my kids loved it too. But in a fallen world, we really can't make those kind of plans, right? You might plan for that vacation, but what happens if there's a snowstorm? What happens if there's a death in the family? What happens if somebody got COVID? Right? You kind of go down the line. You look at Jesus, right? He had power to make the snowstorm go away. He had power to heal any sickness. He had the power to raise somebody from the dead. He shows that he has complete power to fulfill all of the plans. And so the question is, if, if, if this plan doesn't come to pass, is it because Jesus can't fulfill that plan? It's because he has chosen not to. See, ultimately, it's, it's God's plan that will prevail. Ephesians 1.11, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And so when our plan doesn't come to come to pass, here's some things to think about. N- number one, it could be that God is making a statement that you are powerless to execute your plans. You are unable to execute your plan, right? If we were to write certain scripts for our life, we would probably write it a certain way, but that's never going to happen. We are powerless to do so. We need to look outside of ourselves, right? This is the concept of faith. Hebrews 11.1, 1, Now faith is assurance of things hoped for, a conviction of things not seen. That there are unseen spiritual realities that God knows about that we don't that actually make his plan a better plan. And so there's there's a point where you have faith, like the woman and like Jairus, that the power is in Jesus and not in ourselves. That's a good place to be. Secondly, it's important to realize that God will exercise his power according to his will. According to his will, God will not be obligated by our acts. He will not be obligated by anything other than his own promises and his own will. In fact, when you look at the book of Job, right, you guys know the story of Job. He was a righteous man who was wealthy with lots of kids. God seemed to have a wonderful plan for his life until Satan surveys the world and points out to Job, actually, God kind of points to Job and says, what do you think about my servant Job? And Satan says, well, the only reason why he walks with you is because you basically bribe him. You do all these good things for him. And then Satan says, if I take all these things away, he's going to apostatize. He's going to curse me. He's going to curse you. And God says, have at it. And he does. And and you look at what's the whole purpose of that. Well, the whole purpose of that was to demonstrate to Job and all who, who read, is, is that God is not obligated by humanity in any way. What's really being attacked is this idea that if you do good, good happens to you. And if you do bad, bad happens to you. So God is, is seen as some sort of cosmic vending machine where if you give a dollar, you get the Cheetos. You do this, you get this. It's this quid pro quo arrangement. God is not obligated to do anything other than what he wants to do, right? So when you see a power greater than yourself, it is humbling. When your plans fail, it is humbling. It is a reminder that you don't have the power that God does. But that is only comforting, that is only comforting is if you have faith in the person who's planning. You have faith in a better outcome. As I said earlier, Jesus knows the most and Jesus loves the most. God's plan for your life is better than your plan for your life. Romans 8.28 And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to God. His purpose. I mean, have you ever had a plan that failed and you're glad in retrospect that it failed? Any of you with ex-girlfriends or boyfriends? If my life would have gone this way, what would have happened? If your parents stuck with their exes, what would have happened? Right, we can all look at different instances where we're very thankful that certain things didn't work out. Because God had a better plan. And if you can see little hints of that from this perspective, what will it be like in eternity? And in eternity, we will have a better understanding of even the spiritual element and consequence of all of these decisions. You see, this woman was bleeding for 12 years. Where was God's plan in that? Well, God's plan was to restore her to memorialize a story that would comfort billions of people in the future. What was the plan for Jairus' daughter getting sick? Was well, so that everyone would marvel and be amazed at her resuscitation. And sometimes in this life, it's not going to have the happy ending, Right? But what about when Jesus comes back? Did you know that everyone who is sick and dies in Christ will be resurrected? That will be a glorious day. I I half wonder if we're all going to sit around in heaven talking about our various death stories. Well, you wouldn't believe it. I was working at a zoo, and you kind of fill in the blank. Right, wouldn't you like that one? Because he'll take even those things and use it for good and it'll be very obvious to people who are in heaven. So all this to say, you know, for those of you who maybe you're not really happy with God's plan for your life right now, there is an element of faith that God's plan is better than your plan and Jesus knows the most and he loves you most. And for those of you who are kind of hedging, and and I think this is really the issue for a lot of people, especially if you're here at church and you're on the fence, you're really not sure if you want to give him control over your plan. You want to plan your future, and you want God to fit into that plan. It doesn't work that way. Did you know that? The first spiritual law is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But that's only true if you submit to God's plan for your life. And that plan is to surrender your life to him as Lord and Savior. And so some people will push Jesus away thinking that that's the better plan, but they're actually making a terrible, tragic mistake. Jesus says later on in Luke 9, 23-27, And he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Forever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. When you surrender your plan to God's plan, this is the promise. You will not languish in misery, but someday in the perhaps distant future, who knows, when you stand before the Lord in heaven, you will say, of absolute conviction to the Lord, You know, Jesus, that was, a, that was a better plan for my life. Thank you. Thank you. Let's pray. Well, Father, we come before you um, marveling at your wonder-working power in this passage. And Father, we praise you for the loving exercise of your power. And Lord, if anyone is to write a plan for our life, we're glad it's you. Lord, I know some people here are, don't really like the plan right now, but it is your plan and it will have a happy resolution in the end. Help us have faith in that reality. In Jesus' name, amen.